In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We last met in the glow of the night of the Incarnation, the promises of peace on earth, the sense of wholeness, beauty, vulnerability in the family gathered around the feeding trough, all creation symbolically gathering around them and the groans of creation at last being heard and responded to by a God who was with us, Emmanuel, God with us. If you have been among the brave ones to come back uh, this morning, and I don't mean just having come after uh, however one celebrates New Year's Eve, you may feel a little bit hungover. Now, because we are in Wheaton, let me explain that to you after the service. <laughs> the, simplest, <laughs> the simplest, I know I can certainly drop a note. We're not going to go there now. From a past life, of course, but that which is meant to make the heart full of joy and to help God's people learn to live with that which gives us euphoria. There's a reason he gives us wine and not grape juice, and that it's that we learn to live with that which can intoxicate us and to manage it. A little can be uh, more than enough, and a little of that substance, which after all is poison, as someone once told me, can uh, be definitely more than enough. Today's topic is appropriate, however, because within liturgical moments of the baby Jesus being born, there begins the counter-reaction from the prince of this world. And that counter-reaction comes in the form of death, the massacre of the innocents. Coming so hard on the heels as it does of the birth of Jesus then, this event foretold to Joseph in yet another series of significant dreams precipitates the battle between the prince of peace and the princes of this world. The blood price, innocent blood of our salvation, will count Jesus' own blood toward the cost. Now, massacres are not uh, something which I look at often with interest. They come to find us these days. They're much in the news. There seem to be so many examples. I've tried to define what constitutes a massacre, and I've the closest I can get is that it happens when a lot of people are killed by a few people. They are killed at the same time by a few people, and there's the implication that this is an act of engagement. But there's a power differential which is so significant. I mean, people are killed all the time in accidents. People are killed on the battlefield. But this is a case where the power differential is so great that a very few can kill a great number of people. They're in the news all the time. We see them everywhere. Um, the boys killed in and around Bethlehem might have numbered a few dozen. And if we were looking for an analog, maybe Sandy Hook would be our closest thing. However, because of the state involvement in this massacre, I've been trying to find a better uh, analogy 
During the last century, which is by far the bloodiest century in human history and continues to be so as we move on, on our path of progress, scare quotes, and no sign of abating, we have seen single events that far outstripped in numbers a few dozen. One that came to my attention particularly uh, occurring on the 29th of September in the year 1941 saw Hitler's Wehrmacht slaughter 33,571 Jewish citizens of Kiev, Ukraine, in the space of 48 hours in a ravine, Babi Yar, just outside the city. Now, if you try to imagine, which I don't and none of us do, because none of us want to go here, but the reading is here and the newspaper is here and this is where we are called. You try to imagine how a few soldiers of the Wehrmacht slaughter 35,000 people in a couple of days. They don't just run amok with a bunch of machine guns. They have to do it systematically and with the minimum expenditure of energy. The technique which they developed for this particular kind of slaughter, which was not having the benefit of one of the structures that they were building at the time to do that, it was happened to happen, had to happen out in the open air, uh, involved basically bringing people to their grave first and then killing them as they lay in their grave waiting for execution. Because it is there was common knowledge that the Wehrmacht did not act without the active assistance of the people of Kiev, or many of them, in bringing this event about. There is, was no memorial to this massacre for a very long time. The Soviets wished to eradicate any mention of it in history. The first actual memorial to this massacre of the innocents was constructed in sound not in space, by the composer Dmitry Shostakovich to texts of the poet Yevgeny Yevchyshenko. This happened in the year 1962, and it caused both poet and composer no end of grief. They knew what they were getting into. Shostakovich, who has a heart for the victims of injustice, of which his own Soviet experience provided him uh, no lack, wrote apropos of this work, the Symphony Number no. 13 in B-flat minor, Opus 113, and I quote, the majority of my symphonies are tombstones. Too many of our people died and were buried in places unknown to anyone. I'm willing to write a composition for each of the victims, but that's impossible, and that's why I dedicate my music to them all. Now, this is good. The rarest and most valuable thing is memory. The rarest and most valuable thing is memory. It has been trampled down for decades. How we treat the memory of others is how our memory will be treated. Memory. These words are sticking with me these days. I reflect on the meaning of memory and also on the value of life 
Because what we're talking about here is life being taken from those who the day before had not imagined that their life would be taken and who certainly had no desire to see it taken. In recent weeks, I have come uncomfortably close to my own tombstone and come away from the experience with a profound sense of the value of life. Not of my life, for which paradoxically I find less and less promise or worth. I have no idea why I'm here. But for my life, this is what interests me, only in as much as it represents life in general which means the particular life of every living being, present, past, or future. The value of life in general, then, in particular, in the future, for all sentient beings have a future and a sense of the future, of something to which to look forward, of good outcomes or not. Even our pets, even the animals, the mammals know when they're being cornered. They sense when their life is about to be taken away. And all sentient beings have a sense of dread of stepping out into that abyss or of being rolled over into that ravine beyond which our experience does not extend and from which nothing and no one returns. Life. And yet and this is important, of something beyond life too. Life as a matter of providing for us everything that is physically necessary to metabolically sustain us, as you like, is not insignificant. It is an overriding concern of the Bible, an enormous concern in the Old Testament in which it almost seems to be God's one requirement of his people, Israel, that they would be given life, life meaning bodily existence, and that they would be givers of life, that they would gainsay, vouchsafe, that all living beings with whom they could have contact would have life as God intended it in abundance. They were to be, if not the source of life, that was God, the channel of life for all the neighbors around them. They were not meant to hoard this for themselves. That, in fact, was their grave mistake. And God gave them the commandments and he taught them how life was to be lived so that it could be full and just and happy for everyone, so that everyone could belong, if you like, so that of everyone, one could say, I recognize you, I recognize your right to life, I recognize that I am here to help you have that right. That being said, there is something more here, beyond, in all this, a life beyond, beyond the grave, that drags us feebly, day by day, but has locked on too strongly onto our soul. When our life is threatened in the short term, it may not be the first thing on our minds, but it's in there somehow in the mix too, even then that there is something more. Writes W.H. Auden in his Christmas oratorio, For the Time Being, writes, and life is the destiny you are bound to refuse until you have consented to die. Life is the destiny you are bound to reject, to push away, 
until you have consented to die. Until we are ready and looking and facing the imminent loss of our own life, it seems. We have difficulty embracing the capital L life which lies beyond the horizon and yet even now pushes itself into our lives. Something draws us on through the suffering of the world. And this is the point of all these texts. We're not free of suffering. And even though death has changed its meaning, we don't get to not go through it because of what this miracle is that was done in that cradle, that feeding trough. Something draws us on through the suffering of the world, not around it, and certainly not away from it, to get to the heart of God, which is the place from which we came and in which we find our destination. Writer of the letter to Hebrews says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Perfect through suffering. The perfect man who was God still needed this life and its experiences to be made perfect. And what of this life and its experience did he need? He needed the suffering of this life to be made perfect. Does the blood of the innocent cry up in protest from the earth? Not enough to my ears. For the first innocent blood to be shed on Jesus' watch will not be the last. But it will signal the end of an old administration and its sacrificial system in which peace is bought by the scapegoat, whoever that is, wherever they are found. And the restless, relentless search for the scapegoat is perennial. Back to Babi Yar. What's significant? Wehrmacht pushing east. Germans versus Soviets, right? What brought them together to work together? The massacre in the ravine in which Soviets and Germans worked together to kill Jews. The Jews were not at war with anyone. They were defenseless. They were statistically insignificant. They were weak. They were vulnerable. They fit the T perfectly to become a scapegoat and at least temporarily reconcile these two enemies. That's the way the world works. It's the devil's work, may I say. But we'll find that pattern more and more in all our history. What drives the peace that the Wehrmacht brings then when they maintain power and turn their attention to the citizens of the Ukraine, and they most certainly did. And those same citizens who one day had brought Jews to their death were the next day at the bottom of the ravine themselves. Interesting game, politics, when you play it with those who know how to use power well. We're in for interesting times in this country. The search for the scapegoat goes on. I wait to see where it will surface next and who it will target next, because this whole game isn't over. It struck Germany, the most civilized, the most Christian country on the planet. Where will it strike again? That's the search that strikes fear in my heart. 
And how is that kind of peace maintained? By fear as well. The fear of the knock on the door or the call from a friend who is going to say, you're on the list. We get tastes of that, believe it or not. And we know in an instant, frozen in time, a half minute past midnight, that now we are somebody's shadow. We are the ones in somebody's crosshairs. We who sat on top the day before and said, this is unimaginable. This is unimaginable in this country that that would happen. And that means we are no one to someone, not a person, with hopes for tomorrow and with fears, because no one, German, Soviet, Jew, Caucasian, white, Protestant, anyone, can kill another human being in cold blood if they see that other human being as a human being. Unless you see them as non-human, not a person in some way, you can't pull that trigger. It's impossible. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus comes to set us free, piece by piece, shackle by shackle, chain by chain. And we are shackled by fear of death. And the better life gets for us, the more we fear death. And we will do anything to hang on to the life and the way of life we have. Jesus came not to be among the Romans or the ruling class of Jerusalem. He came to be among the poor in a feeding trough. And he was sent into exile, paralleling Egypt or Israel's sojourn in exile from the beginning. So Jesus comes, and from his place of weakness, he says, I feel your pain to those who suffer, and I understand it. Those are big things to say. They don't come cheap and they don't come easy. I know what it is, he said, to be a victim, to be weak, to be not among the privileged, to be on the list. I have walked ahead of you through death, and I feared death. And I asked that the cup might pass from me, and it did not. I felt forsaken and alone as my lifeblood poured out. As Romans and Jews together stood and affirmed what was done. But I have destroyed death's power, which is something you will know someday. And I have delivered, saved those of you who are held captive by the fear of a death from which you fear there is no delivery. For you are delivered. From death, ultimately, and inasmuch as we can grasp this now, from the fear of death now. Being the beneficiary of the best of modern science and the worst within a few days, I celebrate the fact that I am a corpse held together by a battery and a bunch of wire. I know what happens when the wire fails, and each breath I take is thanks to that wire and that battery working. 
But for a moment at least, before I take it all for granted, when Paul says we are dead men, I know what he means. And when you're dead, what do you not fear anymore? You do not fear death. When you are a dead man, you do not fear death because you have nothing to lose. That's what it means to lose the fear of death. And I'll lose, I'll lose this. I'll go right back to my old ways. Watch it. By tomorrow, you can count it already. God is gracious. So the princes of this world slant and skew the reality in which we seem to live and move and have our being. And they make us think that our life is a race against death and that the more we can get our hands on and accumulate for ourselves, the better our life will be, maybe a little bit left for our kids. But deep down, we know that our number will be called. The actuarial tables seem to say that most of us will not leave this planet alive. And the fear of that haunts everything we do. James Allison writes, In any human relationship, the knowledge that death will supervene, will separate, is an ultimate factor, one that cannot be bypassed. We can push it away. We can try to forget about it. We can wear little skulls on our pink little uh, tops and put them on our daughter's purses and make jokes. It's not funny, and we'll all know that. There is always in any human relationship of dedication, any caring relationship, an element of the provisional because of the certainty of death. And how we respond when death comes into our lives is often totally unpredictable. The sequence of emotions that we go through when one of our family begin to enter death's control, I'm looking at a dog right now who I love dearly, who will not make it through the end of this day. But life goes on, you know. You do what you are called to do. My heart will break for her when the time comes. But God again and again confronts us with that ravine. And he says, grieve this thing called death. It's not supposed to be here. It is. It has no place here. And you will go through it as if it will not. And do not let death become a stumbling block to all true loving. Don't let the regular procession of death and loss stop you from reaching out again in love to someone. Of trusting again. Of pulling yourself up, stepping back in to be hurt again. If death has the last word there, and our hearts become hardened, then we really are chess pieces on the prince of the world's game of life. No, Jesus says he has come to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And a fear of death is linked at heart to fear of any kind of loss, of the necessities of life, then we who follow Jesus through death to life must respond in faith for ourselves and faith in action for others. 
we must give, count the cost, and give anyway. We must give till it hurts. We must invest in lost causes. We must give where there's no hope of return. We must pour ourselves out wherever we are called to do and not weigh the worth of someone who is to receive our love except that they are made in the image of God and that they are loved by the same God who loves us. And it means also, and then I'm done, learning to set aside concerns about our own safety and security. If I hear that word safety one more time, I am going to throw up. I mean it. What a miserable, shabby way to live one's life, worried about safety, as if anything beyond the common sense we can use in crossing the road is adding somehow to the worth of our lives to be obsessed that every day we live must be another tiny, perfect day, untroubled by the pain or the misery or the death of others. I don't know how much time you spent losing sleep over what the heck was going on in Aleppo with our new buddy, Mr. Putin, testing his mission's capacity on the civilian population there, as Guernica in Spain was used by the Germans to test out their missile system. And Mr. Putin can go back and say, well, we know this system works fine. We better work a bit more on the barrel bombs. We got work, but now we know how these things play in action. Yeah, life goes on, our friend. So let us set aside, however this whole mess goes, Concerns about our own safety and security. And that's the word to me. To accept the vulnerability that we in the church are in and maybe in this country. And look to a God who sees our strength and acknowledges it. But sees the gentleness, the tenderness, the generosity and the self-sacrifice that is in the heart of the people of this nation. And I pray in the heart of the church and recognizes something even more. We'll have to do whatever we have to do to defend ourselves. And God protect those who put their lives on the line to save my bacon every day. But the most beautiful thing that this community brings is a willingness to look hard, think hard, and then trust again with a tender heart where trust is justified. Reach out and beyond to give more than anyone in this world asks or deserves of the good things we enjoy, of the values that have worked for us, to continue to take our very, very best. And there's nothing like the best that we have and to try to share it with as many as we can. Amen. Please stand.